0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
1: Good evening. Uh, The title for this evening is Britain's Best Poets, which refers naturally, to two English poets, a Scot, and a self-described Australian visitor. But as a great Romanian sceptic once said, a writer's country is his or her language, in this case English, in several of its tongues. Us British love films, were the opening words of a recent and somewhat isolationist BBC survey of British film, grammatically daring from the first word, as Clive James remarked in a review. Us British Love Poets might be a title for this evening. It certainly seems that a readership for poetry periodically translates into something larger, or the audience is not the word. At present, we, we seem to be witnessing one of those moments, perhaps what physicists describe as an attention bulge. This seems not because there is a global spirit abroad in poetry, but because of more than usual number of particular voices are managing to be heard in all their recalcitrance or untranslatability. But we might also remember W.H. Auden's definition of the poet's wish, to be local like some valley cheese, but prized elsewhere. And there's a lot to be said for that too. The evening was originally billed as love poetry, but this covered too many sins, so it was narrowed down to war, immortality, children, friends, heroes nature, animals, art, and so on, and maybe even a few love poems. We'll hear four poets who will each read for 20 minutes and who may say a word or two about their poems and read a poem by other absent poets. Andrew Motion and Don Patterson will read first, followed by a short interval, then Wendy Cope and Clive James. Andrew Motion won the Newdigate Prize for Poetry at Oxford and taught English at the University of Hull for several years, where he had his first volume published, and where he met Philip Larkin. He edited the Poetry Review, he worked as an editor in publishing, and has spent many years teaching writing, first at the University of East Anglia, and um, latterly at Royal Holloway College London. He was Poet Laureate from 1999 until 2009, during which time he was a quiet, persistent, and exemplary champion of poetry. He's published ten collections of poems, a study of Edward Thomas, several biographies, notably of Philip Larkin and John Keats, and a memoir, In the Blood. His most recent pamphlet collection is entitled Laurels and Donkeys, published by Clutag Press, and is a sequence of war poems referring to modern conflicts that have involved British forces, among them the First World War, the Second War, the war in Iraq, and the war in Afghanistan please welcome Andrew Motion
2: Thank you Paul very much thank you all very much for coming as you've heard we've, we have 20 minutes each and I'm going to read, I'm going to read three poems by, that I like very much by other people and three poems what well, I wrote um <laughs> and the first poem that I'm going to read is a to some extent the poems by other people and the poems by me will shadow each other to some extent they will and the first poem I'm going to read is a poem by Edward Thomas which is one of my favourite poems ever and it's called As the Team's Headbrass As the Team's Headbrass flashed out on the turn the lovers disappeared into a wood. I sat among the boughs of the fallen elm that strewed an angle of the fallow and watched the plough narrowing a yellow square of charlock. Every time the horses turned, instead of treading me down, the ploughman leaned upon the handles to say or ask a word about the weather, next, about the war. Scraping the share, he faced towards the wood and screwed along the furrow till the brass flashed once more. The blizzard felled the elm whose crest I sat in by a woodpecker's round hole, the ploughman said. When will they take it away? When the war's over. So the talk began. One minute and an interval of ten. Ten a minute more and the same interval. Have you been out? No. I don't want to, perhaps. If I could only come back again, I should. I could spare an arm. I shouldn't want to lose a leg. If I should lose my head, why so? I should want nothing more. Have many gone from here? Yes. Many lost? Yes, a good few only two teams work on the farm this year one of my mates is dead the second day in France they killed him it was back in March the very night of the blizzard too now if he had stayed here we should have moved the tree and I should not have sat here everything would have been different for it would have been another world aye and a better though if we could see all all might seem good Then the lovers came out of the wood again, the horses started, and for the last time I watched the clods crumble and topple over after the ploughshare and the stumbling team. Quite early on, as Paul reminded us in the deliberations about this evening, there was some idea that we would all read love poems. And so, no doubt, everybody's great relief, including my own. This idea got shelved somewhere along the way. So vestigially, residually, here is one love poem, which is a love poem I greatly like, by Elizabeth Bishop, called "The Shampoo." The still explosions on the rocks, the lichens grow by spreading grey concentric shocks. They have arranged to meet the rings around the moon, although within our memories they have not changed. And since the heavens will attend as long on us, you've been, dear friend, precipitate and pragmatical, and look what happens, for time is nothing if not amenable. The shooting stars in your black hair in bright formation are flocking where? So straight, so soon. Come, let me wash it in this big tin basin battered and shiny like the moon. And the last of these poems by other people I wanted to read is a part of In Memoriam, part 101 from In Memoriam. So, quite late on, I mean, there are only 130 something bits to In Memoriam. So, we're getting to the end here, but there's a, as you're about to be reminded, a a wonderful sense in this poem of driving on in grief uh, through the things that he's remembering. Unwatched, the garden bough shall sway, the tender blossom flutter down. Unloved, that beech will gather brown; this maple, burn itself away. Unloved, the sunflower, shining fair, ray round with flames her disk of seed, and many a rose carnation feed with summer spice the humming air. Unloved. By many a sandy bar, the brook shall babble down the plain At noon, or when the lesser wane is twisting round the polar star Uncared for, gird the windy grove And flood the haunts of hern and crake Or into silver arrows break The sailing moon in creek and cove Till, from the garden and the wild A fresh association blow And year by year The landscape grow familiar To the stranger's child As year by year The labourer tills his wonted glebe Or lops the glades And year by year Our memory fades From all the circle of the hills Well Well dangerous and foolish to read great poems by other people before you read your own so go for a run now and come back quickly Um, and I'll read these three poems which as I said at the outset are in some degree uh, shadowings or I don't want to say responses to because they weren't written with that degree of deliberation at all But they are They pick up on certain things, perhaps, in the earlier poems. And the first of them is a poem that I wrote recently about matters to do with the First World War, which was a poem that I wrote about the death of the famous Harry Patch, the longest-living British soldier who go over the top in the First World War, whom I'd met, um, thanks to the good offices of the BBC and had written about before or during his long life, but then after he'd died, wanted to write about again. So, The Death of Harry Patch. When the next morning eventually breaks, a young captain climbs onto the fire step, knocks ash from his pipe, then drops it still warm into his pocket, checks his watch, and places the whistle back between his lips. At six o'clock precisely, he gives the signal. But today, nothing that happens next, happens according to plan. A very long and gentle note wanders away from him over the ruined ground, and hundreds of thousands of dead who lie there immediately rise up, straightening their tunics before falling in as they used to do, shoulder to shoulder, eyes front. They have left a space for the last recruit of all to join them, Harry Patch, 111 years old. But this is him now, running quick sharp along the duckboards. When he has taken his place, and the whole company has settled at last, their padre appears out of nowhere, pausing a moment in front of each and every one to slip a wafer of dry mud onto their tongues. I thought I wouldn't read a a love poem as such, but about two people who loved each other, which is my parents. My mother died young, and my father died old. But now there they are, finally together again. And every time I go and see them in their graveyard, I get that very odd sense of, that children remember. Actually, perhaps adults remember it too, of turning up unexpectedly at your parents' house and them sort of being pleased to see you, but sort of resenting that you hadn't asked whether it was okay to come then. So what you have to do, listening to this poem, is to imagine a little... Country churchyard, which is what they're buried in, near the borders of the counties of Essex and Suffolk, which is where I was brought up. And this poem is called "Passing." I was passing, so dropped in, unannounced. It had been a while, and my hand on the Lichgate fondly remembered deep scars. It was all perfectly familiar a thin stream of asphalt boasting a surprising fossil life of horseshoes and tiny bells the 19th century chimney maker with miniature brick chimneys worn to smooth columns either side of his green name and beyond these the church with its metal watering can catching slow drips from a tap overhanging the vestry step like falling into like and nothing else moving except my dead father slowly but definitely taking my mother in his arms again allowing her presence to end at last in me when he thought there was no one else to see well clearly that's an elegy of a kind but to end with I'll read a short poem which is much more obviously an elegy in which my wife, whose name is Kyung Soo, appears, but the poem is mainly written for a friend of ours uh, whose name was Brian Nelson, who at the later part of his life was a very sick man he was a Brit who'd ended up in uh, America in Brooklyn but as his time began as he began to understand that his time was ending, he came back to England to well really to say goodbye to various friends and we were two of them and we met him with some other friends in a restaurant that some of you will know called Orso's in Wellington Street on the edge of Covent Garden which is where this poem is set and it's called Lunch though I have to say it was one of those lunches that rather strayed beyond the boundaries of lunch in memory of Brian Nelson When you were across the round table at Orso's, still holding court in your cut-down actor's voice, splashing out the wine for us and breaking bread, no one dared to mention it might be your last time in the old country. But the thought did break cover, as you ordered Kyung Soo and me to hurry up now and get married, then blushed at your forwardness. When we were done eventually you led the way up to Wellington Street to find evening had already fallen and a breeze smelling of leaf mold was drifting over the strand from the invisible river, cold enough for you to tie your scarf more tightly round your throat. Although when that moment passed and the next which took you away, there was still no word we could not stand to hear. Thank you for listening to me.
1: John Patterson was born in Dundee and left school to pursue a career in music. Spent four years playing the top 20 hits of the era with club bands. He moved to London in 1984, where he began reading and writing poetry. He has taught at the University of St. Andrews since 2002, where he is a professor of poetry and lives once again in his hometown of Dundee. He is also the poetry editor at Picador Books in London. Don Patson has published four collections of poetry with Faber, as well as notable translations of the Spanish poet Antonio Machado, a volume entitled The Eyes, published in 1999, and of the German poet Rilke's sequence of 55 sonnets to Orpheus. His poetry has won the Forward Prize, the Whitbread Poetry Prize, and on two occasions the T.S. Eliot Prize. His latest book, Reading Shakespeare's Sonnets, is a 500-page prose commentary on the *fons et Origo of the English sonnet, described by one critic present this evening As an outrageous compound of critical cool and rhetorical extravagance. He has also published two books of aphorisms, a genre which he has defined as a brief waste of time. Don Patterson.
3: As you say, I define the aphorism as a brief waste of time but the poem is a complete waste of time. <laughs> and the novel is a monumental waste of time. Um, I'll read a, I will read. was going to read something entirely different, but my kids uh, are, uh, I see, paying attention, and I hadn't banked on that. They're sitting at the front. Uh, this m- must mean the batteries have run out on the, nin- the Nintendos. Um, so I, I may read this poem anyway, but, but without commentary. So... Hopefully i will just go over your heads. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm going to read three by uh, uh, Shakespeare. And, um, and as many as I can fit into 20 minutes by me. Um, so I'll, I'll read this one without commentary. This is it's kind of late in the sequence when things are getting uh, uh, ent- entirely out of control uh, between Shakespeare and his young man. Like as to make our appetite more keen, with eager compounds we our palate urge. As to prevent our maladies unseen, we second to shun sickness when we purge. Even so, being full of your never-clawing sweetness to bitter sauces, did I frame my feeding? And sick of welfare... Found a kind of meetness to be diseased Ere that there was true needing Thus policy and love To anticipate the ills that were not Grew to faults assured And brought to medicine a healthful state Which rank of goodness Would by ill be cured But thence I learn and find the lesson true Drugs poison him that so fell sick of you. I always hear that last line is pure country and western and have an image of Mel Haggard, you know, and a cord piece, you know. Can you drugs poison him that so fell sick of you? Wonderful. Um, and I'll read one w- you'll you'll know. Uh, and this is really the first point in the sequence where Shakespeare kind of declared his love openly for the young man. Um, and uh, and I think my theory is he almost didn't in this poem as well. He almost uh, 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 got cold feet, but in uh, uh, line thirteen, just decides to go for it, and you can f- kind of feel his heart in his throat at this point. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely, and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines and often is his gold complexion dimmed and every fear from fear sometimes declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade nor lose possession of that fear thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wander'st in a shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, our eyes can see. So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Um, and And I'll read this one as well, it's 146. Uh, on your hymn sheets it's 146 uh, and, it's, uh, and it's, it has a reputation of it's most religious on it it's not religious at all but it's, uh, it, it is about getting absolutely sick of yourself uh, and figuring out what the hell you're going to do about it um, I, and it was also sabotaged by some drunken compositor who, who, uh, who repeated a phrase uh, and now what we usually do is just mess that bit out because we don't know what went there it's, uh, so it's got a gap in it but it seems no reason not to read the poem which is kind of uh, brilliant <clears throat> poor soul the centre of my sinful earth these rebel powers that thee array why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth painting thy outward walls so costly gay why so large cost having so short a lease dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then, soul, live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store, by terms divine and selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead. There's no more dying then. <coughs> uh, right, I'm going to read sonnets. I think I might just stick to sonnets for the next world. Not because I have any particular affection for the form, uh, because I, which I don't. I can't stand. On a good day, I aspire to indifference. I'm sick of them. Um, but they but the, 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 the seem fairly, you know, they seem to happen to me. Um, so I'll read a few of these. And. Um, I've been going around sort of telling folk that I'm going to write 48 of these and then stop and it seems to me that the more people I tell the more likely that this is to happen in a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy kind of a way, you know. So uh, there's going to be another 40 of these things. Um, I should say, uh, it will be the last time I relate this anecdote, but I got the idea from... uh, uh, um, I was sitting there unable to start this commentary that, that, uh, that Paul mentioned, reading Shakespeare's sonnets. I couldn't get going with it at all. really probably shouldn't have started, but there we go. Um, and, uh, and it was way behind deadline. And I got one of those emails in from Amazon um, uh, and where the subject line is, you may also enjoy. You know? uh, and it said, you may also enjoy uh, reading Shakespeare's sonnets uh, by me. Uh, and it said available for pre-order, you know. I, I thought, I haven't started this book yet, you know. So in that t- typical kind of Scottish way, I thought, right, so I, I, I thought, I clicked on the thing, I clicked on one-click ordering, and I thought, well, that's one sale in the bag at least. So. And that seemed, to, that seemed to get me going. So by the same act of sympathetic magic, um, sorry, I'll waffle on here. In fact, I was speaking to Wendy about this earlier, and uh, the, the, the Shakespeare book was not... Uh, uh, received with universal enthusiasm Um, and indeed uh, we got into a bit of a stushy as we say over the border uh, in the the TLS uh, about it and uh, and I wrote a poem in response to a certain critic no I shouldn't say that the the, 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 um, the scholar who features in this poem is a fictional composite uh, and bears no relation to anyone uh, living dead or or Alistair Fowler Um, (laughs) Who I thought it died in the late seventies, but there you go. So <laughs> indeed, he may, may well have done, but he's still reviewing for the TLS. Um, <clears throat> you may bear in mind uh, uh, Yeats's poem, uh, "The Scholars." Uh, it starts with a wee Latin tag, "Pro captu lectoris uh, habent sua feta which, with my failed higher Latin, is something like, um, uh, "By the capabilities of the readers, uh, books have their destiny." A scholar, the light is dying, and the clock has died. The page succumbs to the atrocious care that disinteres the things not wholly there by which your solemn field is justified. You burnish them until they bear the shine of common knowledge, knowing one black skill is yours alone. Before the greater will, all text is dream and takes on the design of what was sought there. Thus, your word is God, this grammar electrifies the gate. None pass but such as you initiate. The students hurry by you in a quad, attending to their feet. What can you say? You know your Shakespeare would have walked that way. I'll shut them up. Um, I'll read something rather frivolous. Uh, He said defensively, I'm one of these boars that think we live in a golden age of American television drama, you know. Uh. Although Mad Men is currently my soap of choice, but I really think it's overrated. I read this thing in the Guardian recently that pointed out why it was in fact rubbish, and I thought that's true. You know, it's Crossroads about good suits. I mean, it's terrible. You know, and the problem is just that every man identifies with Don Draper. You know, it's just that some I, was sitting, <laughs> I was having dinner with a friend the other night, and he's gone, yeah, it, he's just. But I really see myself in him. Like nobody really knows me either. You know, and just, and I'm running away from my past. And I'm saying, I said, Dave, you're an African American with a weight problem. I mean, for, for starters, you know. But we're all doing zebra, um, But my favourite is, is House, uh, which is sort of rubbish, but it has a certain, uh, uh, there's a certain satisfaction in its liturgical rhythm, I think, you know. And, and he himself is this Christ figure. This poem will mean nothing if you haven't seen House, I should say that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and he's a kind of man of constant sorrow but uh, uh, um, it's kind of amazing uh, figure house better all in all the God you know broken drunk in agony at bay yet undistracted from the mystery of our own suffering and if they show its last to blunder well-eyed through the screen with stop the chemo he just has to fart Or gently intimate, it might be smart to swap your Tolstoy for a magazine. We too have known that three o'clock abyss between the differential and the kiss where a man must face the smaller man within, or remember where he stashed the Vicodin. Or let your thousand yard and one inch stare see through us too, for we don't have a prayer. Uh, Seven questions about the journey. Why are we leaving in such unreadiness? They left your last. Is it too late to call? Is there still time to confess? The moment's past. If the weather is stormy, should we go nonetheless? None forecast. Where are our dogs and our horses? Can you guess? Slain, short, ghast. How will we know when we reach our new address? Heed the blast. How do we look in our fine new leaving dress? Alone, aghast. Where are we going so light and riderless? Nowhere, fast. Uh, A lot of this book is about, um, uh, I suppose, what's kind of fashionably called emergence, you know, at the moment. Uh, And it's just the idea—it's a dead simple idea, and you'll know it, uh, which is that if you uh, if you start off with a bunch of hot gas, you know, 13.7 billion years ago, and you just leave it, (laughs) and you know, with no supernatural interference, you know, just leave it. You end up having a kind of one-sided conversation in Notting Hill Gate, you know, just like you know, 13.7 billion years later. If that doesn't if that doesn't amaze you, I I don't know what 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 impresses you, you know. Um, And it's about that kind of uh, little weird feedback loop that 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 constitutes us. I don't believe we're here at all, you know, and we're just chemical scum on a planet, you know. Um, But uh, we tell ourselves that we're here, and, and that seems sufficient. the air. What is this dark and silent caravan that being nowhere neither comes nor goes, that being never has no hour or span, of which we can see only that it flows? How was it that this empty data stream, this cache of dead light, could so lose its way it wandered back to feed on its own dream? How does that dream grow to the waking day? What is that sound that fades up from the hiss like a glass some random downdraft had set ringing now full of its only note, its lonely call drawing on its song to keep it singing? When will the air stop breathing? Will it all come to nothing if nothing came to this? Um... I've taken to having uh, a middle-aged thing. taken to having uh, siestas. Because uh, I read somewhere, it was good for your heart. That's an aggrandizement. A fall asleep in the afternoon would be a more accurate <laughs> way of doing it. Uh, it's, good for, it's good. It's not good for my heart. I wake up ten minutes later with my heart pounding in my ears. I don't know. I, you know, I one hates starting sentences with the words "I don't know if this is just me" because it always turns out it is. But um, I don't know if this is just me. But it's. Uh, but I wake up ten minutes later because uh, it's a terrible time to fall asleep in a state of total uh, existential crisis. You know? Do you know that? Do you ever get that feeling? <laughs> Probably not. But <laughs> when you've been. Uh, Cosmically misfiled, you know, uh, and you think I didn't. And you wake up as this kind of bald monkey with gravity issues, you know, thinking I never signed up for any of this crap, you know. So it's about that uh, that feeling, uh, and it's called here. <clears throat> I must quit sleeping in the afternoon. I do it for my heart. But all too soon, my heart has called it off. It does not love me. If it down tools, there'd soon be nothing of me. Its hammer beat says, you are, not I am. It prints me off here like a telegram. What do I say? How can the lonely ward know who has sent it out or who has heard Long years since I came round in her womb enough myself to know I was not home my dear sea up in arms at the wrong shore and a loud heart like a landlord at the door. Where are we now? What misdemeanor sealed my transfer? Mother, why so far afield? Um... And I'll read two more poems and I'm, I'll finish with a sonnet but I'm getting sick of them so now So, I'll, um, and I'm sure you are too so I'll read it, uh, something that's not a sonnet uh, and it's, it's a poem called Two Trees. <coughs> one morning Don Miguel got out of bed with one idea Rooted in his head To graft his orange to his lemon tree It took him the whole day to work them free Lay open their sides and lash them tight For twelve months From the shame or from the fright They put forth nothing But one day there appeared two lights In the dark leaves Over the years the limbs would get themselves so tangled up Each bough looked like it gave a double crop and not one kid in the village didn't know the magic tree in Miguel's patio. The man who bought the house had had no dream so who can say what dark malicious whim led him to take his axe and split the bowl along its fused seam and then dig two holes. No, they did not die from solitude. Nor did their branches bear a sterile fruit. Nor did their unhealed flanks weep every spring for those four yards that lost them everything as each strained on its shackled root, to face the others, empty, intricate embrace. They were trees, and trees don't weep or ache or shout. And trees are all this poem is about. <coughs> and I'll finish off with a wee sonnet a wee sonnet is a pointless qualification is it not? because they're all the same size um, but a, it's a sonnet and it's, um, most of this uh, the, the, uh, my last book which is called Rain turned out to be a, an unconscious either unconscious elegy or conscious elegy for a man called Michael Donahue uh, known to many of us uh, uh, here I suspect and uh, loved by almost just as many I would suspect too um, and this is the, uh, the most un, uh, uh, ridiculous uh, act of suppression because it was an unconscious elegy but how I, what I couldn't have noticed I don't know and it's a version of a poem by, uh, by Ejo, um for his brother Miguel who uh, committed suicide it's called Miguel duh. <coughs> I'm sitting here on the old patio beside your absence it is a black well we'd be playing now I can hear mama yell boys calm down we'd laugh and off I'd go to hide where you'd never look under the stairs in the hall in the attic and then you'd do the same Miguel we were too good at that game everything would always end in tears No one was laughing that August night, you went to hide away again, so late it was almost dawn. But now your brother's through with this hunting, and hunting, and never finding you. The shadows crowd him. Miguel, will you hurry and show yourself? Mama will only worry. Thank you.
1: Wendy Cope read history at St. Hilda's College, Oxford, and then taught in primary schools in London before becoming a freelance writer in 1986. Her debut collection Making Cocoa*, for Kingsley Amos deftly ridiculed literary and social foible, not least in parodies of unerring accuracy, all of which struck a chord which is still sounding today. Her subsequent collection, Serious Concerns, in 1992, was sharply funny about the related topics of men and disappointment, which struck a chord so very deep that it has sold nearly 200,000 copies. (laughs) Both collections confirmed her reputation as an English humorist, a lineage which includes such as John Betjeman and Philip Larkin, and which means, among other things, being familiar with the less familiar calibrations of human loneliness, loneliness and misery. She endorses strongly Dr. Johnson's statement that the only end of writing is to enable readers better to enjoy life or better to endure it. Wendy Cope has received a a Chonley Award and from the American Academy of Arts and Letters the Michael Browd Award for Light Verse. And as T.S. Eliot said, no verse is light to the poet who wants to do a good job. Her selected poetry, Two Cures for Love, appeared in 2008 and her new collection of poems, Family Values, which breaks ground both formally and in its subject matter, is published today. Well, Wendy Cope.
4: Thank you, Paul. You're not allowed to wonder if it's true. She loves you very much. She tells you so. She is the one who knows what's best for you. She tells you what to do and where to go. She loves you very much. She tells you so. That's why she's sending you to boarding school. She tells you what to do and where to go, and there is no appeal against her rule. And now she's sending you to boarding school. She'll be upset if you are cross and sad. And there is no appeal against this rule. If mummy is upset, you must be bad. Her children often make her cross and sad. And then she cries. She cries and sulks all day. If mummy is upset, you must be bad. It's no good saying sorry. You must pay. You watch her cry. She cries and sulks all day. You'd make your mother happy if you could. It's no use saying sorry, you must pay. Things will get better if you're very good. You'd make your mother happy if you could. She is the one who knows what's best for you. Things will get better if you're very good. You're not allowed to wonder if it's true. That's my Mother's Day poem. <clears throat> i went to boarding school when i was seven and this this, is some this is a series of poems of three poems um about that it's called borders borders are better than day girls we never questioned that belief we were tough we could survive without our mummies and our daddies not like feeble day girls feeble was our worst insult Secretly I knew I was feeble And lived in fear of being teased Teasing was our word for bullying The bossy girls picked out the victims Sometimes turning on one of their own Mostly it was verbal Now and then a cry went up Chase for Trudy Tipple The girl took flight The mob pursued its human quarry I didn't join in I like to think it wasn't just because I couldn't run. (laughs) Once there was a special party. Every boarder had to invite a day girl. My choice was Susan Bird, a gentle girl. I liked her face. I felt I was doing her an honour. I was willing to be her friend. But nothing came of it. Even though I was a boarder and she a mere day girl, she didn't jump at the chance. I wasn't teased much. The worst time was in my first year because some older girls decided that I used too many long words. I soon learned not to. Look at how I write. This one is called Once I'm Dead. Once I'm dead, I won't mind being dead. Why worry? I don't want to say goodbye to everything, to me, the voice that said, once I'm dead, I won't mind being dead. The words are comforting, but still I dread the day that we must part, myself and I. The voice may still be heard when I am dead, But not by me. I will have said goodbye. And the next one in this cheerful series of poems is called My Funeral. Really, this is about things that had annoyed me at other people's funerals. I hope I can trust you, friends, not to use our relationship as an excuse for an unsolicited ego trip. I have seen enough of them at funerals, and they make me cross. At this one, though deceased, I aim to be the boss. If you are asked to talk about me for five minutes, please do not go on for eight. There is a strict timetable at the crematorium and nobody wants to be late. If invited to read a poem, just read the bloody poem. If requested to sing a song, just sing it as suggested and don't say anything. Though I will not be there, glancing pointedly at my watch and fixing the speaker with a malevolent stare, remember that this was how I always reacted when I felt that anybody's speech, sermon or poetry reading was becoming too protracted. Yes, I was impatient and intolerant and not always polite, and if there aren't many people at my funeral, it will serve me right. (laughs) A sonnet. Sonnets happen to me, too, sometimes. Um, This is a, a nostalgic sonnet about an old love affair, and it's called Macedonia, 1987. A little crowd had gathered in the square. We read our poems, and they were polite. Then there was dinner in the open air outside the castle. A warm summer night. The local bigwigs lit up their cigars and asked us for a song, and straight away you stood. I see you underneath the stars. I hear your voice. I hear it to this day. I too can sing, but I am English, so although I wanted to, I didn't dare. And still, though that was 20 years ago, a male voice singing German takes me there. Bach and Schubert. Won't let me forget that evening, five days after we first met. I'm going to read um, a couple of poems from a series called "The Audience," um, which was commissioned by the Endelian String Quartet, and. the poems are all about different people you might find in the audience at a concert of classical music and Roxana Panufnik wrote the music and it's actually getting its London premiere this evening but I can't be there so um, I thought I'd read a few of them here. I went to the rehearsal and, um, and it's, not, it's not the first performance. We've done it about eight times but this time they wanted a famous actor so that's fine. Janet Sussman is reading there and I'm reading here. Right, This one, this one is called The Coffer. There's a tickle in your throat and you've hardly heard a note and you're wishing you were in some other place. In this silent listening crowd, you're the one who'll cough out loud and you know you're facing imminent disgrace. Yes, right now you're in a pickle. The unmanageable tickle is a torment and it's threatening your poise. Can you hold out any longer as the urge to cough grows stronger? Any moment you'll emit a mighty noise. If this bloody piece were shorter, if you had a glass of water, it would help. But there is nothing you can do. Oh, if only you could be safe at home with a CD in an armchair, free to cough the whole way through. (laughs) Do you hear a rallentando? Does this mean the end's at hand? Oh, what a mercy. Yes, they're really signing off. They perform the closing bars, and you thank your lucky stars, and it's over. You have made it. You may cough. Usually that poem makes people cough, so you did very well. This is called The Traditionalist. I like a good tune with a regular beat From the days before music went wrong An old-fashioned melody, catchy and sweet I like a good tune with a regular beat These modern composers, they can't write a song They don't get you tapping your feet I like a good tune with a regular beat from the days before music went wrong. I read that a year or so ago at a charity event in the Bishop of Winchester's garden. I used to live in Winchester, and the audience cheered. and that tells you everything you need to know about Winchester. <laughs> The next one, that's the traditionalist. This one's called The Radical. Now, if you, as you may know, the radicals in the poetry world have a low opinion of me, so I really enjoyed writing this one. <laughs> the Radical. I've little patience with this kind of thing, this trite, postmodern, easy listening. I hoped for something far more challenging. This isn't avant garde enough. It really isn't hard enough. It isn't avant garde enough for me. The point is not to please the bourgeois ear. The good composer is a pioneer whose music very few will want to hear. This isn't cutting edge enough, it isn't off the ledge enough, it isn't cutting edge enough for me. Art should disturb. It's not to make us glad. It isn't to console us when we're sad. It's to remind us that the world is bad this isn't agonized enough, you're not antagonized enough, it isn't agonized enough for me. And it says, repeat ad lib, it really isn't hard enough, it isn't (laughs) avant-garde. Now most of the poems in the audience are quite jolly like that, but then they asked for a sad one um, to give the composer a bit more scope, and I wrote this one called The Widow, and she... Actually, did something very beautiful with this poem and listening to it because I never really had a chance to listen to it properly before with the music because I've always been standing there counting and trying to come in at the right moment. Um, but actually, it's, it's, it's stunningly, I found it stunningly moving. And I perhaps shouldn't say that as I wrote the words, but Janet Sussman read it really beautifully and uh, M- Roxanna's music worked terribly well with it. The Widow. I like this piece, I think you'd like it too. We didn't very often disagree back in the days when I sat here with you and knew that you were coming home with me. This is the future. It arrived so fast. When we were young, it seemed so far away. Our years together vanished like a day at nightfall, sealed forever in the past. I can't give up on music, just discard the interest we shared because you died, and so I come to concerts, but it's hard. Tonight I'm doing well. I haven't cried. My head aches. There's a tightness in my throat. And you will never hear another note. Right, um, the last poem of my own I'm going to recite to you um, as an introduction to poems by someone else. and It's called Another Unfortunate Choice. I think I am in love with A.E. Houseman, which puts me in a worse-than-usual fix. No woman ever stood a chance with Houseman, and he's been dead since 1936. (laughs) Now, we were asked to say something about why we like the poems that we like. I find this very difficult. I find it very difficult to say why I like the poems that I like, but... What comes to, to mind about Hausman is something Clive James said in an essay about Larkin, and Larkin is another of my favourite poets. He said, he faces the worst on our behalf and brings it to order. Um, Houseman was an atheist who looked death in the face. So there's death in every poem. He never forgets about it. But the other thing that dominated, I mean, the thing that dominated Houseman's emotional life was a great unrequited love for his friend Moses Jackson, who he met when he was an undergraduate. And I think this... The pain of this unrequited love, the emotional pressure that created. I think he, you feel he had to write these poems. He had to write it as the only way of dealing with it. And I mean, they are wonderful love poems. If truth in hearts that perish could move the powers on high, I think the love I bear you should make you not to die. Sure, sure, if steadfast meaning, if single thought could save, the world might end tomorrow. You should not see the grave. This long and sure-set liking, this boundless will to please, oh, you should live forever if there were help in these. But now, since all is idle, to this lost heart be kind, ere to a town you journey where friends are ill to find. Another poem about love. I was going to say actually about Houseman I was quite late reading Houseman and um, in fact I did a reading with Adrian Henry in Long in Prison as it happens and it was after my first book had been published and I started writing some of the poems that were in my second book and I read some of them and Adrian said to me, Wendy have you read Houseman? And I said no not really, odd one in anthology he said you should, you really should and he was quite right um, but one of the things that put me off was, I think A Shropshire Lad is one of the most off-putting titles um, and, you know, I thought, why would I want to read about a Shropshire lad? And, and that was one of the reasons I didn't read House, So don't let the title put you off if you haven't. And then, and then his other books, there's last poems and there's more poems, but like Pam Ayers, And then there's additional poems which were published after his death. It is no gift I tender, alone is all I can. But do not scorn the lender, man gets no more from man. O mortal man may borrow what mortal man can lend, and t'will not end tomorrow, though sure enough t'will end. If death and time are stronger, a love may yet be strong. The world will last for longer, but this will last for long. In this one, um, he uses the word thorough to mean through. Um, which my learned partner, Lachlan McKinnon, says was already archaic by the time Houseman did it. Um, you, know, you get it in Shakespeare, Thorough Thoroughbriar. Twice a week, the winter thorough, here I stood to keep the goal. F- football then was fighting sorrow for the young man's soul. Now in Maytime to the wicket, out I march with bat and pad. See the sun of grief at cricket trying to be glad. Try I will, no harm in trying. Wonder tis how little mirth keeps the bones of man from lying on the bed of earth. You all know this one, but I'll read it anyway because it's lovely and it's very appropriate for this time of year. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough and stands about the woodland ride, wearing white for Eastertide. Now, of my three score years and ten, twenty will not come again, and take from seventy springs a score, it only leaves me fifty more. And since to look at things in bloom, fifty springs are little room, about the woodlands I will go, to see the cherry hung with snow. And lastly, my... Absolute favorite. From far from eve and morning and yon twelve winded sky, the stuff of life to knit me blew hither. Here am I. Now for a breath I tarry, nor yet disperse apart. Take my hand quick and tell me, what have you in your heart? Speak now and I will answer. How shall i help you say air to the winds 12 quarters i take my endless way thank you
1: Clive James has published several collections of his remarkable essays travel writing, literary television criticism, and five volumes of autobiography. Most importantly, his collected poems have appeared under the title The Book of My Enemy, 1958 to 2003, as in that unforgettable opening line, The Book of My Enemy has been remaindered, and I am pleased. (laughs) And a second collection of poems, 2003 to 2008, entitled Angels Over Elsinore, both published by Picador. Clive James has variously expressed and acted upon the belief that poetry is not an isolated activity to be overheard, that it is written in ordinary language, which is also the language of information, and that it plays its part in the language game of giving information, in which respect he parts company with Ludwig Wittgenstein, who believed the opposite to be the case. He has written definitively about the vagaries of poetic reputation and was perhaps the first to identify the phenomenon of Death by Acceptance, the very British torture whereby a poem is accepted by a magazine for publication and then not printed for months, that stretch into years, that stretch to infinity. <laughs> but print is no longer the only form of publication, and poems can now be put into the atmosphere without publishers. Clive James has spoken with contained eloquence about these new heavenly bodies of possibility and has described his own website, www.clivejames.com, as, quote, a vanity press the size of a space station. <laughs> Clive James.
5: Do you. Think you could... uh, yes, I, I, uh, I'm doddering here. I've been doddering since January last year when I got very ill, and uh, since then it's been a bit, a bit of a battle, and I'm doubly pleased to be invited here tonight. Uh, first of all, it's a great honour to be with these serious poets, and, um, and also it's a kind of miracle that I could actually make it, since I'm actually functioning at the moment without an immune system of any kind. Uh, I just dose up on antibiotics. But the doctors, have, the doctors have a great list of things that I'm not allowed to do, but they didn't say I couldn't do this. <laughs> so I did it. <laughs> uh, when you're lying there, facing the final curtain, as Paul Anker once so eloquently put it, <laughs> he was wrong about that, incidentally, when you think about it, the final curtain is the one you never face. <laughs> Um, When you're lying there, um, threatening to wink out, uh, it's uh, almost compulsory to examine one's life and ask the fundamental questions. And one of the fundamental questions I ask myself in various hospitals is how on earth did I, of all people, become involved in poetry, either earlier or later? I, who was of such an unusually insensitive nature, uh, impermeable against all the higher feelings of mankind. Uh, all that, and born in Sydney, Australia. To boot, as we scarcely ever said, although actually we were rather fond of archaic English expressions. And the answer is actually quite complex. And uh, I was raised in a household where there were a few books. Both my parents uh, left school in their early teens to work on the production lines. My father never got back from the war. But my mother somehow loved poetry anyway and she was particularly fascinated by the Rubaiyat or the Rubaiyat we used to call it of Omar Khayyam which she could recite. And so uh, the first poetry I heard and remembered was from her and it was a stanza of the Rubaiyat. The moving finger writes And having writ moves on, not all thy piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line. Nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. And the way the line's balanced, nor all thy tears is beautifully placed. Well, I, I don't know how an echo can come first. But somehow, if you're going to be a writer, the echo comes first. You hear the beginning of what you will one day uh, be be involved in and then when I by some miracle I got to university instead of jail which is where I belong uh, uh, one of the first things that happened to me going on in Sydney at that time was a production of Long Day's Journey Into Night in which all the famous Australian actors concentrated very hard on trying to sound American uh, with various levels of success And the young man playing the young man, who was meant to be Eugene O'Neill himself, uh, gets to recite the poem by Ernest Dowson. And there I was, sitting in the gods of the theatre, the old Elizabethan in Sydney, while this voice came drifting up. They are not long, the weeping and the laughter, love and desire and hate. I think they have no portion in us after we pass the gate they are not long the days of wine and roses out of a misty dream our path emerges for a while then closes within a dream and I was beyond thrilled captivated, learnt it instantly later on I discovered Darsen himself and um, It was, again, it was the way the words moved. Movement was the first thing I caught. We were, I think, more rhythmic than lyrical. Uh, Lyrically attuned, as it were. Rhythm was the first thing we heard. The Australian version of English is very rhythmic, very punchy. And uh, even my teachers weren't always entirely certain the way some English words and names were pronounced. Because Sydney was a long way from... Britain in those days. And your English teacher would spend years teaching and not be entirely certain whether John Lilly was pronounced John Lilly or John Lilly. And uh, later on in my life, I met a professor of English in an Indian university who had been lecturing for several years on the poetry of W.B. Yeats. Um, on uh, the analogy, of course, with Keats, who perhaps he called Keats, who knows. Uh, and he'd gone far past the point where you could correct him. Now uh, That happens quite frequently in Australia. It's actually a good sign when people pronounce, mispronounce words. It means they're reading ahead of their level of hearing. They've read more than they've heard conversation, which is, which is always good and should always be approved of. And uh, the current Prime Minister of Australia, for example, Julia Gillard, is actually well in the national tradition when she goes on television as she did yesterday and was interviewed on the ABC and said, uh, uh, well, Chris, we all know about your fondness for hyperbole. And when you think about it, the hyperbol is rather good, isn't it? It's it's the the really the big game in the post in the post season after the Super Bowl, the hyperball. <laughs> I like her for it, and uh, I didn't mind that my teachers weren't absolutely sure whether it's John Lilly or John Light. In fact, I still don't know. He spelt it two different ways. Why shouldn't we pronounce it two different ways? when I got started on English literature I just sort of dived in and, um, and I actually fell for one of Lily's poems it's called Cupid and Campaspe I'm going to read that I must be chewing into my time here I must keep a close watch on this Cupid and my Campaspe played at cards for kisses Cupid paid he stakes his quiver, bow and arrows his mother's doves and team of sparrows loses them too. Then down he throws the coral of his lip, the rose growing on his cheek, but none knows how. With these, the crystal of his brow, and then the dimple of his chin, all these did my be win. At last he set her both his eyes. She won, and Cupid blind did rise. O oh love, has she done this to thee? What shall, alas, become of me? He was good, Lily. They were everywhere. There were the poets on the course and then there were the poets off the course. And uh, it was the great time, the magisterial ascendancy of Auden and McNeice, who had been famous um, before the war but really started to dominate the world in the 50s. And uh, it was in the late 50s that I read the great poems by Auden and McNeese. And I thought one of them by McNeese called Birmingham was one of the most magic poems I'd ever seen. Although I had absolutely no idea where Birmingham was situated in England. I think I thought it was some sort of suburb of London. When I finally got to England, I went to Birmingham just to see what it was like. And it was no longer like what McNeese had seen in the 30s, but the driving rhythm of the poem helped to form me, of that I'm sure. Uh, his use of the long line was like Charlotte Mew, another great commander of the long line. It, the line went on longer than you could believe and still remained rhythmic. Very good training to try and do that. Birmingham. Smoke from the train gulf, hid by hoardings, blunders upward the brakes of cars. Pipe as the policeman, pivoting around, raises his flat hand. Bars with his figure of monolith pharaoh, the cues of fidgety machines. Chromium dogs on the bonnet. Faces behind the triplex screens. Behind him, the streets run away between the proud glass of shops cubicle scent bottles artificial legs arctic foxes and electric mops but beyond this center the slumward vista thins like a diagram there unvisited are Vulcan's forgers who doesn't care a tinker's dam splayed upwards through the suburbs houses houses for rest seducingly rigged by the builder half-timbered houses with lips pressed so tightly and eyes staring at the traffic through bleary hawes and only a six-inch grip of the raising earth in their concrete claws. In these houses, men, as in a dream, pursue the platonic forms, with wireless and Cairn terriers and gadgets approximating to the fickle norms, and endeavor to find God and score one over the neighbor by climbing tentatively upward on jerry-built beauty and sweated labor. The lunch hour, the shops empty, shopgirls' faces relax, Diaphanous as green glass Empty as old almanacs As incoherent with ticketed gewgaws teared tiered behind their heads As the Burn jones windows In St. Philip's broken by crawling Leads, insipid colour Patches of emotion, Saturday thrills This theatre is sprayed With June The gutter take our old playbills Next weekend it is likely In the heart's funfair we shall pull Strong enough on the handle to get our money or at any rate, it is possible. On shining lines, the trams, like vast sarcophagi, move into the sky, plum after sunset, merging to duck's egg, barred with mauve zeppelin clouds, and Pentecost like the car's headlights bud out from side roads, and the traffic signals, creme de month or bull's blood, tell one to stop, the engine gently breathing. Or to go on to wear like black pipes of organs in the frayed and fading zone of the West. The factory chimneys on sullen sentry will all night wait. To call in the harsh morning, sleep stupid faces through the daily gate. And phrases get into you and they stay. And they... Well, they don't precisely fester. It's the wrong word, but they create all kinds of organic activity. And it can go on for decades, and then eventually it will affect what you do. And maybe the words won't be the same, it'll be the same shape. And I just know if I live long enough, I'll write a book called The Fading Zone of the West. It's beautiful. But i better get on with it. And uh, I'm going to do some of my poems. I think I've chewed up almost all all my time but if you can bear with it I'll write I well uh, in my later years uh, I gave more and more attention to my childhood even before I got ill because the memories got clearer and I wrote a poem called When We Were Kids and I think you might catch the mood even though for you the references are different Unless you were actually born and raised in Australia in my time, some of these things won't have happened to you. You might not have tasted them or seen the names or heard the words. But the moods, I think, are the same. Uh, it's called When We Were Kids. I hope this mic is okay. Am I booming and popping? And You can hear it okay. It's all right. Yeah. When we were kids, we fought in the mock battle with Ned Kelly cap guns and we opened the cold bottle of Shelley's Lemonade with a scout belt buckle we cracked the passion fruit and sipped the honeysuckle when we were kids we lit the thunder cracker under the fruit tin and we sucked the all day sucker we opened the shoe box to watch the silkworm spinning cocoons of cirrus with oriental cunning when we were kids we were sunburned to a frazzle the beach was a griddle you could hear us spit and sizzle We slept face down when our backs came out in blisters. Teachers were famous for throwing blackboard dusters. When we were kids, we dive-bombed from the tower. We floated in the inner tube, we bowled the rubber tire. From torn balloons, we blew the cherry bubble. Blowing up Frenchies could get you into trouble. When we were kids, we played at Cockalorum, Gutter to gutter, the boys ran harem scarum. The girls ran slower and their arms and legs looked funny. You weren't supposed to drink your school milk in the dunny. When we were kids, the licorice came in cables. We traded hubba-bubba bubblegum for marbles. A new connie agate was a flower trapped in crystal, worth just one go with a genuine air pistol. When we were kids... We threw the cigarette cards against the wall and we lined the grenadier guards up on the carpet and you couldn't touch the trifle your Aunt Marge made to go in the church raffle. When we were kids, we hunted the cicada, the pet cockatoo bit like a barracuda. We were secret agents and fluent in pig Latin. Gutsing on mulberries made our lips shine like black satin. When we were kids, we caught the Christmas beetle Its brittle wings were gold-green like the wattle. Our mothers made bouquets from frangipani. Hard to pronounce, a pink mustick cost a penny. When we were kids, we climbed peppercorns and willows. We startled the stingrays when we waded in the shallows. We mined the sand dunes in search of buried treasure. And all this news pleased our parents beyond measure. When we were kids... The pus would wet the needle when you dug out splinters and a piss was called a piddle. The scabs on your knees would itch when they were ready to be picked off your self-renewing body. When we were kids, a year would last forever. Then we grew up and were told it was all over. Now we are old and the memories returning are like the last stars that fade before the morning. And uh, also as you lie there, helpless, the last trace of libido vanishing away into space. (laughs) You remember your sorry track record in later years of trying to fascinate young ladies of literary bent by lunching them with many a reference to poetry, that magic potion. <laughs> the Cupid and be Persian, And there she is, and she's read a bit, including my beloved Charlotte Mew. And I speak to her, or some man a bit like me speaks to her. Reciting poetry by those you prize, Auden, McNeese, Yeats, Stevens, Charlotte, Mew, I trust my memory and watch your eyes To see if you know I am wooing you with all these stolen goods. Of course you do. Across the table you know every line does service for a kiss or a caress. Words taken out of other mouths in mine are a laying on of hands in formal dress. And your awareness measures my success while marking out its limits. You may smile for pleasure, confident my love is pure. What would have been an exercise in guile when I was young and strong is now for sure raised safely to the plane of literature where you may take it as a compliment unmixed with any claims to more delight than your attention. Such was my intent this morning as I planned what to recite just so you might remember me tonight when you are with the man who has no need of any words but his or even those the only poem that he cares to read is open there before him how it flows he feels and how it starts and ends he knows I'm going I'm going to end with a poem Uh, that poem incidentally is in my book uh, Angels Over Elsinore and also in this book Opal Sunset which is a book of selected poems and uh, these books will be available at the signing table. Uh, I'm under medical advice not to sign books because theoretically I'm at the mercy of anyone who might be carrying any disease whatsoever including plague and uh, the doctor actually told me, let me tell you what condition you're in. If someone who is harboring plague breathes on you, you will develop it before he does. <laughs> but I, I think, I've got a feeling nothing will stop me getting to that table. If it, if it does, I want you to know I'm with you in spirit. And uh, still am. Uh, one of the... <laughs> My episodes in my various illnesses happened in New York last year. Uh, I got there because I wanted to be there for the opening of my daughter's painting exhibition. I contracted a deep vein thrombosis. The moment I arrived, went straight into Mount Sinai Hospital and was woken up by visits from various friends, Americans, including my friend Adam Gopnik, who bought me uh, many books, including a marvellous book of... of, of critical history by van wick brooks big name in america who told a wonderful story about whitman it gave me the idea of a poem and eventually i wrote this poem which which the new yorker published very kindly and immediately put behind a paywall so you can't possibly read it <laughs> except if you go to my website <laughs> where and this will horrify wendy cope who's against the whole business you will find that I'm the first poet to have stolen his own work. It's a pioneering and possibly stupid move. I can see Don Patterson sitting down there who's publishing me, and he's, he's deeply thoughtful on the subject. Whitman and the Moth, it's called. This is my, this is my last one, so I'll just pack up here. Van Wick Brooks tells us Whitman in old age, sat by a pond in nothing but his hat, crowding his final notebooks page by page with names of trees, birds, bugs, and things like that. The war could never break him, though he'd seen horrors in hospitals to chill the soul. But now, preserved, the union had turned mean. Evangelizing greed was in control. Good reason to despair Yet grief was purged By tracing how creation Reigned supreme A pupa cracked A butterfly emerged America Still unfolding from its dream Sometimes he rose And waded in the pond Soothing his aching feet In the sweet mud A moth he knew Of which he had grown fond Perched on his hand as if to draw his blood. But they were joined by what each couldn't do, the meeting point where great art comes to pass. Whitman, who danced and sang but never flew, the moth, which had not written leaves of grass, composed a picture of the interchange between the mind and all that it transcends, yet must stay near. No, there was nothing strange in how he put his hand out to make friends with such a fragile creature, soft as dust. Feeling the pond cool as the light grew dim, he blessed new life, though it had only just arrived in time to see the end of him. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing...